This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Father Thomas Joseph Leia asked me to talk about um, quest the, the um, part of the treatise on law on the natural inclinations or the precepts of the natural law. And I am eventually going to do that. But first, I need to prepare the soil, right? I've learned from years of gardening that if you don't prepare the soil, anything else you do is just pointless. So I'm going to uh, go way back um, in the Summa before the treatise on law um, and talk about what Aquinas says about the moral life generally. Um, you know, what, what he's doing in the treatise on law is incredibly important um, because he's bringing together law and virtue and happiness. Um, and he's also bringing together reason and nature and freedom, right? Which is actually pretty tricky to do. A lot of people have messed that up. Um, and, but I think to really understand what's, what's going on when he's talking about the natural inclinations or the precepts of the natural law, um, you first have to understand what he's saying about the human person, about the principal capacities of the human person, about the dispositions that perfect those capacities and the end to which those capacities are directed, right? Which is happiness, uh, our final end. So I wanna start by just reviewing some of the things that he says about the practical life, which is the same thing as the moral life and the first thing that I want to say, and that you probably know already in some vague sense, but maybe you don't know exactly what it means, is that the foundation of the moral life, so the foundation for thought about decision and choice and deliberation and virtue is human nature, right? So that's, that's the ultimate source of it. Um, and I know this is a conference on conversion in the life of the mind. Um, I'm a convert. I'm a convert from nothing. <laughs> um, not a convert from some other religious faith. Um, and I was in large part converted through reading Thomas Aquinas as a young person, as an 18 to 19 year old. And um, the thing that really struck me was this this question. So so. So sort of how St. Thomas manages to unite reason, nature, and freedom um, to me uh, seemed to make sense in a way that nothing else that anybody else was saying philosophically or culturally made sense. And um, the thing that Thomas does that is really sort of profound and amazing and also I think true is that he comes to a view where morality, of course, is obedience to God's will, right? It's obedience to God's eternal law. It's conforming the will to reality. Um, but at the same time, um, or rather, maybe I should say, what is the same thing? It's also the fulfillment of and an attraction to what is really good and beautiful. Right, so the moral life is really based in attraction, right, and um, and I think that's um, I think that's really important because, like, when you study moral theory or when you talk to people about morality, it tends to uh, the conversation tends to be directed upon um, a sense of practical necessity that feels external to you. It feels like it's externally imposed. Like you just have to do this because morality demands it or the law demands it. Um, and there's a sense in which, again, it's true because morality is about obedience to God's will, but it's also deeply internal, right? And that's kind of what I wanna focus on is the internal character of morality, right? That it is a natural attraction to, a deep natural attraction to what will actually fulfill you as the kind of thing that you are. Right? So it's really about fulfillment. And we can't understand this obedience or the goodness of the obedience apart from its being a fulfillment of our nature. So that's what I want to get to. Um, 
And of course, the other thing that St. Thomas thinks following classical philosophy um, is that the fulfillment of the law is a matter of right practical reasoning, right? So the moral life is also the rational life. Now that's also connected to nature because the thing that's distinctive about human beings as opposed to other animals is that we have rational capacities, right? Namely intellect and will. Okay, um, so another way to put all of this is to say that for St. Thomas, the source and the summit right, the beginning and the end of the moral life is the desire for happiness. That's where you start and that's where you end. Um, and another way of putting that is to say that the source and the summit of the moral life is God because it turns out that the only thing that is actually going to fulfill your natural desire for happiness is God and also it comes from God. Okay. Um, so that all sounds great, um, but the only thing is <laughs> that Aquinas also recognizes that we are fallen, right? And so we're kind of messed up and we're not just messed up because, I don't know, we're born in an imperfect society, although we are born in an imperfect society. Um, but they were, we were fallen in the sense of original sin, right? So uh, human nature itself sort of like simultaneously ordered to the good, uh, but in a way that implies, you know, struggle and difficulty and thus the necessity of virtue, right? Um, so I briefly just want to talk about Aquinas on virtue Virtues are just stable dispositions of thought, action, and feeling that perfect or maybe correct, uh, correct and perfect um, the principal powers of the human soul, right? And what I mean by the principal powers of the human soul are those powers of the human soul that get taken up directly into the moral life, right? So if you think about um, Thomas's account of the human person, right? You have um, intellect and will, and these are essentially rational capacities. And then you have uh, what he calls the irascible and the concupiscible. These are not essentially rational but they can be brought, I mean, they, they as it were, Aquinas follows Aristotle in saying, um, they can listen to reason, right? Or they can obey reason, uh, but they are not themselves essentially rational. Um, so these are lower appetites. Um, let me just go through briefly what these are. Intellect, uh, obviously, is our capacity to know and to understand and to think, um, to intuit. Um, but it really, it's our capacity for knowledge, right? Um, and then will is, so this is an intellectual or a cognitive power. Will is an appetite, a capacity for desire. Um, but will is, well, and these are capacities, these are appetites too, irascible and concupiscible. Um, and then there's also corresponding to these, I should say, our perceptual powers, right? Um, our sensory cognitive powers. So what I can see and hear and touch and taste, etc. Um, but anyway, will is an essentially rational capacity for desire. What does that mean? Um, it means that it's a capacity to want things or to seek things insofar as they are rationally perceived as good, right? So um, maybe I'll just try to define the will um, in contrast to what it is not. So think about like the concupiscible power, um, which is really just like your sensory, um, your capacity to experience bodily pleasures 
and desires. So you can imagine that you're walking down the street and you go past a bakery and you just like catch a whiff of something. Maybe it's like croissants, just something that smells really good. It smells delectable, right? Well, that's a sense perception, right? And probably, you know, if you like croissants, which you should, they're very good. Um, probably that um, engenders in you some kind of um, inclination. Maybe it's weak, maybe it's strong, but some kind of inclination to um, consume it, right? To enjoy it. But of course, you're not like an you're not just an animal, so you're not just automatically going to go buy a croissant, right? Um, you have an ability to ask yourself whether or not um, that's something that's good to do right now. Like, do you have any money? Do you have the time? Have you already had breakfast? You don't really need a croissant. Um, is your cholesterol too high? Whatever. Like, there might be all kinds of reasons why. You shouldn't act on this sensory, this concupiscible desire. So you can make a choice, right? To either keep going or to go get a croissant, right? So this kind of deliberative desire, right, um, is, is the will. Um, you know, and will isn't just a capacity to choose. Um, the will also, Aquinas says, uses the other powers of the soul. So for example, in the life of study, right, the will might direct the intellect to study this as opposed to that, or to pay attention to this as opposed to that. The will might use, right, all of your locomotive powers um, for the sake of this or that end. But it's, um, it's a kind of intentional directing of the other capacities of soul towards what is understood by the intellect as generally good in accordance with your vision of how to live in life. So you have intellect and will, and those are the essentially rational capacities. Um, and that's really like the essential stuff of human life. Um, but you're also an animal. Right, so you have a perceptual, you have perceptual capacities. So you have these lower appetites. The irascible appetite is just um, a capacity to experience aversions to what is sort of dangerous or fearful. Um, so like, I don't know, sirens started going off. You know, we would all have like a flight response that's natural. Um, and then concupiscible appetite, like I said, is this kind of um, sensual desire for bodily pleasures. Um, these principal powers of the human soul, and they're principal because um, they can become the stuff of voluntary human action, um, they all have virtues that perfect their exercise. And these are what the kind of says the cardinal virtues, right? What are the cardinal virtues? You can tell me what the cardinal virtues are. Yes. Courage, Yes. Right. So we have um, maybe I'll just look for. It's not the best erasing that ever happened, but it works. Um, so we have prudence, right? Justice. Um, fortitude, I like the word fortitude, but you can say courage, and um, temperance. These are the four cardinal virtues, right? Um, and, I, and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm operating at the level of nature here. And um, the great theologian will talk about uh, grace and theological virtue, but those are the, those are the four cardinal virtues. Um, and prudence perfects the practical intellect. We're not gonna talk about uh, philosophic wisdom, um, at least not today. And um, justice perfects the will. Fortitude perfects the irascible appetite and temperance perfects the concupiscible appetite. So basically, if, you think, if you're thinking about prudence or practical wisdom, um, that's just right practical judgment.
right? The practical intellect is a capacity for practical judgment. It's interesting that justice perfects the will. I'm, I, I could talk about this for ages, but just the basic idea is that justice, right, is about our external actions. So it's not, it's not so much about the interior life, but about um, external actions, and in particular, our transactions with other persons. So actually right now we're engaged in a kind of transactional activity, teaching and learning. And it makes these um, external actions uh, or these external transactions good, right? And Aquinas thinks you need a good will um, for that. And that's what justice does. Um, fortitude is what uh, regulates your fear, right? Um, so it's regulating a lower appetite and then temperance is what is regulating, um, you know, your um, capacities to experience sensual pleasures. And Aquinas has a picture of the cardinal virtues in which they're unity, right? You have to have all of them. But what's especially interesting for me and that I want to stress right now is the unity of virtue, the unity of these cardinal virtues is the unity of the human person. So Aquinas' idea is that these principal powers of the soul are unified so that they operate towards a single unifying end through the development and exercise of these virtues. What's that single unifying end? Living well, right? Living well as a human being. You can't live well as a human being unless your capacities to live as a human being get perfected. And they get perfected through the cultivation and exercise of these virtues. And so virtues are good habits of soul, right? Um, that make for a good person. Um, they allow you to have well-ordered loves but they also, um, Aquinas says this over and over again, they preserve the good of man, right? The good of the human. And, you know, justice preserves the good of man by um, bringing about reason in our external acts. Fortitude protects the good of man by allowing us to hold firm to our practical judgments. Because um, if probably you know, if you're really afraid, your judgments aren't awesome, right? So you have to have well-regulated fears in order to hold firm to what you know is good and demanded of you in the situation. You can't do that without fortitude. It turns out just telling yourself, oh, be calm. It actually doesn't really work. <laughs> you have to have the stuff of fortitude. And the stuff of fortitude isn't in the practical intellect. It's down here, right? So you have to train those lower desires um, in order to hold firm to your right practical judgment in the face of difficult circumstances, especially the dangers of death. Um, and then temperance preserves the good of reason against the bodily and sensual desires and pleasures that cloud it and make it ineffective, right? So, um, right, people who um, are really given over to bodily pleasure sometimes have a hard time seeing what's really demanded of them in a situation. Um, but they also, even if they see it, right, they're like, oh, I know I shouldn't have that third bourbon. It's such a really bad idea. Um, it's not, it's not effective. Like the judgment goes nowhere in them. You know, it's like Aristotle says, he's like the man who says, I shouldn't have the third bourbon is like the drunk reciting Empedocles, right? Like, you know, the words are, just, they're just words. Um, and without temperance, the idea is they'll, they'll just remain words. So virtue, um, is a kind of perfection of these capacities. And um, the contrast for Aquinas, as for Aristotle, is between virtue and mere continence or incontinence, 
So like just to go over this very briefly, this comes up actually in the treatise on temperance um, and in Aristotle's discussion of temperance, that's when he introduces the difference between the acratic and the encratic um, and the virtuous person. So the basic idea is once you have virtue, once you have developed the virtues, then you do what is correct, yes, but you do what is correct with ease and pleasure. And this is like really important um, that you do it with ease and pleasure. So you're not, you don't have, for those of you, I, I realize some of you apparently have read the Confessions, which is amazing, good job. Then you know about Augustine's divided will, right? Give me chastity, Lord, but not yet. <laughs> um, or just this, Augustine is this really, um, internally divided human being in a way that I think is familiar, right? Um, you know, what, what does he say? Like, I don't, I don't want what I want, right? How can this be? But we all know how it can be, actually. <laughs> um, because it's the experience of knowing what I ought to want, but not actually wanting it. Um, and this for Aquinas um, can manifest itself in two ways. So you can be encratic, that is to say you can have self-control. Um, so you can't, so let's go back to the party, right? It's, it's someone has invited you to have a third bourbon. Um, you could be thinking to yourself, shouldn't have the third bourbon, really want to have the third bourbon, I'm just going to leave the party, <laughs> right? Like, like I want that third bourbon, can't have it, got to go, right? That's self-control. And self-control is good. And in fact, Aquinas says that self-control is like a necessary step on the way to virtue. Like, there's just like a period where all you have is self-control. But that's not actually the condition that ultimately you want to be in, right? Um, now, a worse off condition, of course, is the acratic. Um, or the weak-willed or, or the incontinent, whatever you want to call it. And that's the person who's like, I know I shouldn't have the third bourbon. I really want the third bourbon. And they just drink the third bourbon, right? Um, it's not that this person like changed their mind. It's that this person doesn't have temperance, <laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, this judgment that you shouldn't have the third bourbon, it's like the drunk man reciting Empedocles. Um, it doesn't, it's not effective for him. Um, but the real condition that you want to have is perfected concupiscible appetites, where the sensual desires that you experience are in line with reason. That's what you want. For Aquinas, it's not enough that you choose the right action. I mean, that's good, definitely choose the right action. But the continent person chooses the right action. But they don't, in a sense, choose well because they do it with difficulty rather than with ease and pleasure. And I think this matters because again, morality is about happiness, right? And happiness has a strong subjective psychological component, right? Happiness can't be reduced to feeling good, even though everybody tries to do that now. That's wrong. It's profoundly wrong. But it does, you know, if you are happy, it would be weird to say that somebody was happy if they were like super sad and depressed. I mean, if, if, if their internal psychology were just all negative emotion, that doesn't look like happiness. So again, that's why we need virtue, right? So that we do, we not only choose well, but with ease and pleasure. Okay. Virtues are divided into intellectual and moral, right? So prudence would be an intellectual virtue and justice, fortitude, and temperance would be moral virtues. There's also a distinction in Aquinas between natural and theological virtue. I'm only talking about natural virtue. Father Thomas Joseph White will talk about theological virtue. Natural virtue corresponds to our natural end, right? And um, so it, it basically is like the stuff of this life, right? 
it's like the virtue of the wayfarer, maybe you would say. Um, and so the happiness that natural virtue is directing us to is a kind of imperfect thing. Um, so Aquinas also makes a distinction between imperfect and perfect happiness. And um, I want to stress that imperfect happiness is very great. <laughs> like just because something is imperfect doesn't mean that you shouldn't strive for it or that it's not, you know, it's very great imperfect happiness, but it's not perfect. So when we're talking about the sort of fulfillment, right, of your nature that you can attain or acquire in this life, it's an imperfect thing. It's imperfect in several ways. Um, if you are familiar with Aristotle, you know that he talks about this in the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, one respect in which Aristotle talks about kind of the chanciness of happiness, what he calls eudaimonia, is that um, it's not stable, right? Like you, you might lose it through no fault of your own, right? You might, you might be virtuous and everything's going great, and then the world just doesn't do you any favors. So here, his example is King Prime, right? He's like Prime was a great man. Look at what happened to him. That's a possibility, right? It just, and it's not, and it's, and it wasn't his fault. It's not that you could say, well, he lacked temperance. That's not what happened to him. Um, the other respect is just that human beings are finite and vulnerable. Maybe you wake up one day and you have cancer. Uh, or maybe you wake up one day and your kid has cancer. Or you wake up one day and all of a sudden it's there's war um, and poverty and famine or who, or who knows what. Like all of these things are possible. And so Aristotle like admits that yeah, well, the highest good, you know, the thing around which you order your life and your reasoning um, is a chancy thing. It's an imperfect thing, um, but it's the best that we can hope for. Now, Aquinas, of course, also thinks that it's not uh, the best that we can hope for. He thinks that we can hope for more than this chancy sort of happiness. But um, that's why he draws the distinction between imperfect and perfect happiness. Um, but the cardinal virtues are the stuff of imperfect happiness. Um, okay, now I wanna talk a little bit about happiness um, in a more substantive way. Um, the point where Aquinas talks the most about happiness um, is the beginning of the Prima Secundae, the so-called treatise on happiness or the treatise on the last end. And he says a couple of things that I wanna highlight this morning. Um, one just is that happiness is our final end. It's an end, it's the goal, it's the point, it's the purpose, it's the telos. Um, and therefore it's also the good. Those are the same for Aristotle um, and for Aquinas. Um, good is of the end. It's also the rule and the measure. So it's a standard. Um, it's that against which we judge and measure our actions. Um, the thing about happiness that's really interesting is that it both defines and measures human acts. So it's that in virtue of which human acts are moral or properly human acts, but it's also the measure of whether those acts are good or bad, right? So a really simple way of thinking about this is that, you know, a human act is good insofar as it is in conformity with or advancing you towards this goal of happiness. And it's bad if it's not. It's bad if it's taking you away from that, right? Now, Aquinas um, thinks that good is real, that it's part of objective reality. But he also, you know, thinks there's a hierarchy, right? So some things are, you know, there's good, better, best. <laughs> um, so when we're talking about happiness, we're talking about the highest or the best or the complete or the final good. Um, and that is both the object of the will and the goal of practical reason. It's both. Right, so 
the internal telos of practical reason um, is for you to attain or achieve this telos of happiness. Um, but it also gives the will its object, right? It's So when Aquinas defines the will, both in the treatise on man and in the treatise on happiness and in other places, he says the, the formal object, the formal defining object of the will is the universal good. Um, that's the same thing as happiness. Um, the last thing I want to say about intellect and will is that Aquinas follows Aristotle here and thinking that um, intellect and will um, operate together in an important sense. Um, and the best way to understand it is that if you think about desire, any kind of desire, it's, it, it's directed upon some object, right? You don't just have desire, right? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Whenever you experience any kind of desire, it's a desire for something. It has some kind of object that it's directed upon. Um, where does it get that object? For Aquinas following Aristotle, and I think this is just, this just seems true to me. <laughs> um, it gets it from some cognitive power, right? You perceive or you judge or you intuit or you intuit whatever, something as good. And then you want that, right? And in absence of any kind of cognitive communion with a thing, you couldn't desire it, right? And that's why like plants, they don't, they don't desire things because they don't have any cognitive powers, right? Um, so desire gets its object from practical reason. So you have the will as an appetite for the universal good, right? And you have practical reason as that which judges what it is good and necessary to pursue in the circumstances. And the way that happiness sort of functions in this account of practical reason and willing is that happiness is like a condition for the possibility of practical reasoning. How is that? Um, we're getting closer to the stuff of uh, the question in the treatise on law that I'm supposed to be talking about, and that is um, first principles, right? So in, in practical reason, right, the first principles are the ends or the goods, right? Um, They're the objects of desire or inclination. Um, and the thought is that um, practical reasoning, so when, when Aquinas talks about reason, he makes a distinction between speculative reason and practical reason. And he says that speculative reason or theoretical reason um, is just about knowing what's true. So if you get onto truth about the way things are, that's an operation of your theoretical reason. And like, in, in some lame sense, you know, like you're done <laughs> once you just know what's true. It's not like that for the practical intellect, right? Because the practical intellect isn't just ordered to what is true, although as intellect it is ordered to what is true, right? But to realizing that in action. Um, so it's like, it has a different end, it has a different goal. Um, and so Aquinas recognizes this, this distinction. It's a distinction he's picking up from Aristotle. The distinction's really clear in Aristotle in a way that it's not clear in Plato. Um, and so he has, um, he has this idea that in both operations of reason, right, you have to have starting points, right? And these are the first, these are the first principles. Um, and the starting points or the first principles are natural in some really robust and important sense. Um, and so we just, 
have them or discover them, or uh, sometimes he talks about it being connatural to us to know them. Um, and But the basic idea is that some things are naturally known and naturally desired. So this matters, I think, for thinking both about happiness and about the natural law and ultimately for thinking about freedom. So in the treatise on happiness, question one, article five, Aquinas says everything that man desires, he desires for the last end. So all that you desire as a human being, you desire for the sake of happiness. And a lot of people, especially in a contemporary context, just think, oh, well, that's just obviously false. It's either based on some kind of logical fallacy, um, or even if you can get Aquinas out of that problem, it's just false as a matter of human psychology, right? Like sometimes we just want stuff and it's not because we think explicitly that it will make us happy. We just like want it. Um, in fact, some things we want, we know, won't really make us happy, and yet we find ourselves wanting them. Um, so how can we make sense of this claim, and why is it important anyway? It has to do with the nature of choice and the nature of how we think about practical reasoning. Um, and I guess I want to say a few things about this. Um, maybe I'll just start with this idea that, look, when you want something in the rational way, not something in the sensual way, right? But something in the rational way. That is to say, when you intend and choose and execute it, um, you, it has to be rational, right? Right? Um, it, it has to, if we're talking about the will, and it has to have an ineliminably rational component to it. And that means that it has to get taken up into your vision of how to live, your vision of what it's generally good to do. And so even um, take the case of the thing that you kind of like know is bad, but you still find yourself wanting it. Um, even that is, and let's say you do it, even that is in some sense ordered to your happiness because the person who's doing that has either forgotten in the circumstances what he really thinks will ultimately make him happy, um, or after he's done it, comes to regret it. So this is something that Aquinas talks about a lot when he talks about continence. He says, the difference between, oh, sorry, not continence, the weak-willed person. So the weak-willed person is different from the vicious person. I haven't talked about this yet. The vicious person does the wrong thing, has the third bourbon, but thinks he's living well, right? So he has no regret. He doesn't feel that. He might feel bad the next day in like the hungover sense. <laughs> he doesn't feel bad in the moral sense, right? He thinks, well, that was a great party. I was living it up. Can't wait to do that again. Just got to deal with this hangover. Um, whereas the weak-willed person feels regret, and it's necessary that he feels regret. Um, if he doesn't feel regret, he's not really weak-willed, but is actually vicious. Um, and that sense of regret um, is the recognition, right, that this wasn't, in fact, in accordance with what is living well. Um, but I didn't see it at the time right? Because I was so taken up with sensual desire. Aquinas' favorite example of this is Peter denying Christ. But that's a lack of fortitude, right? Because Peter was afraid that the crowd was going to kill him if he admitted that he was a follower of Christ, that he was a friend of Christ. Um, so he denies it famously three times. 
But as soon as the crowd leaves, he goes outside and weeps, right? Like he, like he realizes as soon as the fear of death is gone, he realizes like, wow, I really messed up. Um, so it's really about, so one way to think about happiness as the final end is that it's the condition for the possibility of choice as choice as rational desire. It has to have this ineliminable universal component to it. Otherwise, it collapses into something lower. And of course, Aquinas talks forever in the treatise on happiness about how it's necessary that you desire happiness, but it's not necessary that you desire true happiness, right? So there are a lot of false gods or strange gods that people have in their life. Um, people pursue power, people pursue wealth, people pursue pleasure, thinking that it will make them happy, um, and it doesn't. What is happiness? Aquinas says, following Augustine, again, for those of you who've read the Confessions, Book 10, happiness is delight or joy in the truth. It's a kind of um, knowledge, actually. It's a perfection of the intellect, actually. Um, and because it's a perfection of the intellect, it's consequently a perfection of the will. But it's essentially a perfection of the intellect. Um, and it's knowledge of God's essence, which we know for Aquinas is the same as, as God's existence. Uh, there is no distinction there. Um, so our perfect happiness, it turns out, is going to be an intellectual possession of God otherwise known as the beatific vision, um, where God is present to us by an act of intellect, the perfection of the mind. Um, now, the imperfect happiness in this life, right, is going to be some kind of imperfect copy or image of that, um, or a foretaste of that. Um, so it will have some kind of, it's not the same, but it will have some kind of direct relationship to it. Okay. So now I finally want to get to law. Um, so, so if you're thinking about kind of the structure of the Summa, you have like the treatise on man where he goes through all of the powers of the soul. Then you have the so-called treatise on happiness where he talks about the final end, right? What's the point? Why are you here? What's the purpose? It's happiness. Then he goes through good and bad human acts. I'm not going to talk about that at all, except to say that their measure is the final end. Um, then he gets to habits and virtues, and he goes through them all. Then he gets to law, right? Um, so law comes after his discussion of virtue. Um, but what we discover in the treatise on law is that virtue is an essential aspect of law. So I want to start with question 90. Um, what is the essence of law? I've helpfully <laughs> written it on the whiteboard here. Um, I, I don't think this account of law can be improved upon, actually. Um, this is a really excellent account of law. Law is an ordinance of reason directed to the common good made by he who has care for the care, authority over the community and promulgated. Um, the promulgation part hopefully we'll get to what is the promulgation of the natural law. Um, question 91. So that's just the essence of law. If we're talking about law, we're talking about that. Um, question 91, eternal law. Here's what Aquinas says. All things partake of eternal law through their natural inclinations to their proper acts and ends, all things. Uh, a human is a is a is a kind of thing, right? All of us are beautiful, unique, individual persons made in the image of God, but we're all exactly the same, in that we share human form, right? Um, and all things, all all natures partake of eternal law through their natural inclinations to their proper acts and ends, right? Now, I've been talking, <laughs> uh, like the, the preparation. See, because at this point, Aquinas, like, is assuming you know what he's talking about, <laughs> right? 
I mean, if you if you just started with the treatise on law, you might be like, what's he talking about, right? But we know, right? Because um, we've been talking about um, what is our proper end and what sort of acts, right, help us to attain that end. Um, but here's Aquinas is making a really general point, namely that all things partake of eternal law through their natural inclinations. And then he makes another incredibly important point about the natural law. Natural law is nothing else but the rational creature's participation in the eternal law of God. So whatever it is that you do when you follow the natural law, it is a participation in God's eternal law. And then he says, the precepts of the natural law are general and indemonstrable principles from which human reason needs to proceed. So now, finally, uh, the question that I was asked to talk about, question 94. Um, whether the natural law contains several precepts or only one. Um, here is where Aquinas talks about the first principles of reason. It's not the only place he talks about them, but it's one of the principal sources. Um, and I'll start with the first principle of speculative reason, which sometimes is called the principle of non-contradiction. This is again, something that he's getting from Aristotle, right? Metaphysics um, four, six. I could just write it up here. Right. It is not the case that both P and not P. Oh, sorry, that's or, geez. Um, right, it is not the case that both P and not P. It is impossible for the same thing to belong and not to belong to the same thing at the same time in the same respect. And it's impossible, not because like, it's just the way our minds are constructed. It's because being is like that. It's because reality is like that. Reality cannot contradict itself. Um, and since the purpose of the mind is to conform itself to reality, right? Then that has to be the, the first principle of thinking in a speculative register. What is the first principle of practical reason? Um, do good and avoid evil. Um, that's both helpful and not helpful. But the idea is that in the practical life, right, which is the life of action, right, we are to pursue what is good um, and we are to avoid what is bad. Um, and um, there are two parts of uh, first principles in the practical life for Aquinas. Um, the ones that I'm going to talk about today correspond to the do good side of that. Like pursue these things, pursue these ends, because these are the ends that belong to you as the human, pursue those. But there's also the avoid evil side of it, right? Um, so some things Aquinas thinks, some human actions um, are never to be, never to be done. There's never a right time or a right reason or a right way to do them. Here's one, murder, right? Uh, turns out there's just never the time for that, ever. Um, so if you ever find yourself thinking about murdering somebody, you've already gone wrong. Stop. Do not deliberate about this. Um, and that's a first principle because it functions in the same way. It's a starting point. There's some things that in the deliberative life, we know we're not gonna do. We're not gonna go there, right? If I go there, I fall off a cliff. So I just know from the beginning that murdering is never a good conclusion of my practical reasoning. Um, neither is adultery, neither is lying. Right? These things are just never good. Um, and again, he's, of course, this is baked into Judeo-Christianity um, but it's right there in Aristotle. It's right there in Aristotle. Um, Aristotle has the same view. Um, I 
Anyway, so the first principle of practical reason is do good and avoid evil. That's not very helpful. <laughs> um, what, you know, okay, but you know, what's good and what's evil? Um, and here's where the um, precepts of the natural law come in, right? These are like fleshing it out. One thing that I think is different about Aristotelian ethics generally um, from like say Kantian ethics or um, even utilitarian ethics is that um, there are no merely formal principles of practical reason. Um, and there can't be. There aren't. <laughs> there aren't because there can't be. Um, precisely because the good is, is tied to nature, right? And we're a certain kind of thing. And we have certain kind of natural inclinations that define what it is reasonable for us to pursue as the kind of thing that we are. So the first principles of practical reason are ends or goods that we are naturally apt to see as good and to desire as ends. These are the precepts of the natural law. Um, there's a whole lot of scholarly work and debate about the precepts of the natural law. I don't want to get into that. I can get into it, like, if you want to talk to me about it. Um, but one thing I want to say is this, somewhat controversial, but I think true. So our grasp of these first principles is internal to our experience of human life. Like it's, 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 it's sort of like um, part of our practical self-consciousness as human beings. So like you don't need to be taught it. You don't need to learn it by reading a book. It's not something that you discover in the way you might discover like the true essence of gold. Um, it is if you are uh, brought up in a remotely reasonable way, <laughs> um, you will come to see these things as good, right? So Aquinas says it's a kind of connatural knowledge. It belongs to the human to see these um, as good and as worthy of pursuit. Yeah, so this is question 94, article one. No, article two, sorry. Wherefore, according to the order of natural inclinations is the order of the precepts of the natural law. Because in man there is first of all an inclination to good in accordance with the nature which he has in common with all substances, right? Inasmuch as every substance seeks the preservation of its own being, right? According to its nature. And by reason of this inclination, whatever is a means of preserving human life and of warding off its obstacles belongs to the natural law. There is a man an inclination to things that pertain to him, more especially according to that nature which he has in common with other animals, right? Um, so here he's talking about sex and education of offspring. Thirdly, there is a man an inclination to good according to the nature of his reason, which nature is proper to him as man. Thus man has a natural inclination to know the truth about God and to live in society. And in this respect, whatever pertains to this inclination belongs to the natural law. And then he's very clear in the very next article that the life of virtue belongs to the natural law, which in a way we already knew when he said that the natural law, right, is a participation in God's eternal law um, and is that which is according, that which directs us to our natural end. And we already know that we can't get that except through uh, the cultivation and exercise of virtue. Okay, so last thought. It's like a 60 second thought, I promise. Um, this is about freedom. So if the moral life is the happy life, is the life lived according to nature in some sense and following the natural law, where does freedom fit in, right? Because we tend to hear nature talk as 
that which is determined, that which is not free. Um, insofar as we even believe in free will anymore, and many people do not, <laughs> um, we think that freedom is this kind of weird positing um, into a completely determined order of things. That's obviously not going to be St. Thomas's account of freedom. So what is his account of freedom? Um, he basically has a view where freedom, um, one is freedom for, right? For the attainment of your good. Um, so that any vice or sin is, is really kind of lack of freedom. Um, and then secondly, that freedom kind of happens in the space between the general and the particular. There's a really long journey, right, between these very, very general ends or goods that it's kind of natural to you to know and doing the right thing here and now. That's like a huge space. And that's the space of right practical reasoning, right? The first principles are given to you but you have to get down to the action. So that's the space of human freedom. Um, it is bound by the good and is for the good. Um, and it is a part of nature and it is a part of, is a part of reason. Um, these things are not at all incompatible or opposed. Okay, so now we take questions, comments, confusions, Yes. So uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the talk that uh, Thomas Aquinas has like this understanding of man's inclination towards the good, but he also has an awareness of original sin. Yeah. What would you say to people who um, say that original sin is fundamentally incompatible with like an Aristotelian anthropology? Like if I have all of like these passions and things mm -hmm. like that, and they need education, if we don't have original sin, why would education even be necessary for the passions? If just inclined to the good all the time. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, like, I mentioned that as a convert. To me, like, original sin just seemed obvious. I was like, oh, yeah, right. Because, um, like, we're just, I mean, I just could just pay attention. We're pretty messed up. And they're interesting. I mean, so I, I just finished teaching Iris Murdoch across the street at CUA. And and she's an atheist, but she's like, original sin is true. Like in some deep sense, like everybody sees that the human is selfish and self-centered and um, has a really hard time with reality, right? Um, and like really virtue is about obedience to reality. But like that's really hard for humans. So she's like, she's like, call that original sin or, you know, go Freudian, like however you want to cash that out, it's just a fact. It's a fact, it's a starting point, it's the reality about us. Did Aristotle acknowledge it? I mean, sort of, but not really. I mean, I, I feel like Aristotle um, gestures towards human messed upness, but doesn't quite take it seriously enough. It, I mean, it sort of depends on how you read Aristotle. Um, but there is a reading of Aristotle. I don't think it's the best reading of Aristotle, but there is a reading of Aristotle according to which he thinks the virtuous person is not just an ideal, but a reality. So when he says, like, follow Pericles, like, he really thinks Pericles had virtue in his demanding sense. Um, I think a slightly better read of Aristotle is just that that's the, that's what you strive for, but probably never really get. Um, but it depends on how you read him. Um, but I think regardless of Aristotle, if we just stick to what seems true, it seems to me that um, however you want to cash it out, we, we just seem to really struggle to be good, that we just seem to be selfish, right? In ways that um, are really problematic given that we are the sort of thing that lives in society under law. Yeah. 
Um, in response to what you just said to his question, that um, happiness is the highest common good, um, and that you know you also need to think about how does my happiness hurt other or my happiness yeah. other people. Um, I feel like one response to that could be, well, the answer is, you know, just make sure you're not hurting anybody and you're fine, right? You know, just like kind of look at your impacts on other people, mm-hmm. um, which is something we hear a lot today on our campuses and stuff like that. Um, and I, th- I mean, I think this is a question about the common good and something like that, but I'm curious what would Aquinas have to say about, no, like, well, it's not just a happiness that doesn't hurt people, you know, it's a happiness where I'm happy and that makes you happy. And, you know, yeah. What does it look like? Well, I think I think when I said hurting other people, I meant a very specific sort of thing, wronging them, which is a special kind of harm. Um, and I think sometimes people can reason themselves into a position where they think wrongly that you know, for example cheating on a spouse isn't wronging them, right? They convince themselves of this. Um, And of course that's familiar, it's in fact very common. (laughs) Um, So we have to have some agreement about what it is to wrong someone. Um, And so we we would have to flesh that out. Um, But I think, you know, we have to always be alive to the fact that, and this is again to go back to our fallenness, that um, we tend to be deceived about ourselves, right? We tend to be really deceived about our motives. Um, But we, you know, we, the human sort of is, nobody likes to hear an unpleasant truth. And it's very easy and natural not in the sense I'm talking about natural, but like natural in the sense of easy um, to avoid unpleasant truths. Um, And so I think if you are friends with someone and they have convinced themselves that something that is unjust is not only fine, but like actually good for the person that they're wronging. Uh, Well, an example of this was like, you know, slavery, like all the pro-slavery arguments were like, oh, well, this is what's best for the slave. And it's like, hmm, people really believed that. People really, and it's important to remember this. Uh, These weren't just like monsters roaming the earth. These were people who really had convinced themselves, right, that they, that this was like beneficial somehow. Um, And that's, um, there's a lesson there if we were willing to see it, namely that that kind of um, consoling fantasy is a thing that like we go in for on a mass scale (laughs) sometimes actually. Um, And so when you're confronted with somebody who's in some way, look obviously from your perspective wronging someone that they think not only that they're not wronging them, but they're helping them. Um, there's no like easy way to get them out of that, right? But if you love them, if you care about them, then you'll try in a patient way over time to get them to see that, no, actually this is a human and is capable like all humans of self-determination and practical thought and deserves freedom and you're exploiting them. Uh, hello. Uh, Hi. Um, yes. My 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 question was: you mentioned uh, in your uh, in your lecture that uh, Thomas uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas thought that uh, fulfillment of the law was a matter of practical reason. Um, yeah. And so um, Saint Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that um, he who has charity has fulfilled the law, right? Um, and it would seem that supernatural charity, I know that your uh, presentation was on uh, natural virtue, but yeah. um, is there <laughs> is there uh, some kind of a tension or are there two ways of understanding within Thomas's thought um, fulfillment of the law, right? So is there a natural fulfillment and a supernatural fulfillment? 
um, like a fulfillment through supernatural charity and then a fulfillment through just kind of um, kind of a natural virtue that's non-salvific, right? Are, are there like two modes of understanding uh, the fulfillment of the law? Um, is, and is there a tension between those two modes if those two modes exist, right? Because it would seem that charity might sometimes go against what Aristotle might call practical reason. I know there's a lot there. But, yeah, there's yeah. a lot there. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, I mean, I you know, I'm inclined to say yes and no, right? I mean, we just need to make a lot of distinctions and sort of patiently go through some things. But I mean, ultimately, and I, of course I haven't said anything about this, but ultimately, like, charity is the form of virtue, right? And charity um, perfects the will. Faith perfects the intellect. Um, and of course, as a matter of grace and yada yada. And I haven't said anything about any of this because it's above my pay grade. But um, I don't think, I mean, but look at the end of the day, um, like we want to draw a distinction between nature and grace because we want to philosophically be able to formulate the claim that grace perfects nature. And we can't do that philosophically unless we can draw a distinction between nature and grace. And at any rate, it's, it seems, um, but um, I think it would be, um, I, would, I would need to say a lot more than what I've said to um, really answer your question in a meaningful way, which is sort of like my artful dodge, you know, because I, I, there's, yeah. Because there are a lot of fights about exactly how you parse this anyway, and I don't want to take a stand in those fights. Um, but but look, I mean, ultimately, what I will say is that um, you know the the stuff of natural virtue um, is the um, you know it's it's like a. <laughs> Let's go back to my gardening metaphor. You know, it's like the soil. <laughs> you have to prepare the soil. Um, and so it's really important, but it's not the final. When, when we talk about our final, perfect, fulfilling end, right, we're not talking about something that we can attain through the exercise of our own. We can't attain it like under our own steam. And we can't have it in this life. Right. So um, when when we talk about the ultimate fulfillment of the natural law, yeah, we we are talking about grace. And in fact, it's some somewhere Aquinas says that the natural law is the first grace. Right. Um, and which, again, I think suggests this kind of preparation. Um, but, you know, that's for the, um, rector of Magnificus. <laughs> Let's give our thanks to Dr. Frank.